Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. This week marks 20 years since police carried out a raid on a BC farm and what would turn out to be the biggest crime scene in Canadian history. We asked the lead detective in the investigation whether the lessons of the Robert Picton case have been learned. We look into a once-in-a-millennium event that happened off the coast of Vancouver Island in 2020, the most extreme rogue wave ever recorded, say researchers. But first, Ottawa faces increased pressure on both sides of the border, including from the Governor of Michigan and the White House, to bring an end to the ongoing border blockades. Border blockades, they continue today and expanded to include a new one in Emerson, Manitoba, in addition to the ongoing blockade in Coots, Alberta, and that other one that was getting a lot of attention today on both sides of the border. The shutting down of truck traffic since Monday across the Ambassador Bridge linking Windsor and Detroit. Some $400 million worth of goods travel across that bridge every day. Industry groups are turning up the heat, demanding something be done. The governor of Michigan today said, quote, my message is simple, reopen traffic on the bridge, and reports tonight that the White House is urging Ottawa to use federal powers to end the border blockade. Today, auto industry groups backed by the mayor of Windsor announced they are seeking an injunction to end that blockade. Meantime, in Ottawa, my colleague David Aiken is reporting tonight that a phone call is taking place between the Prime Minister and other opposition leaders about the protests. Earlier, though, Trudeau was getting an earful from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. The Prime Minister of one of the wealthiest countries in the world can't make sure people are safe in the nation's capital, can't make sure people don't feel abandoned, can't make sure that our borders are open. And after two weeks of Supporting the protest, the interim Conservative leader told those responsible for the blockades, it is time to pack up and go home. I am asking you to take down the blockades. Protest peacefully and legally. But it's time to remove the barricades and the trucks for the sake of the economy and because it's the right thing to do. Interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen. Again, some $400 million worth of trade flows by truck across that Ambassador Bridge every day. And already, some of the companies suffering a direct hit uh, are up in arms. Cavalier Tool and Manufacturing in Windsor is one of them. It ships about $5 million worth of goods across that bridge every month. And the sales manager, Tim Galbraith, joins me now. Tim, welcome to the show. Pleasure. So this hasn't been dragging on for long, but what has been the immediate impact that you're seeing at, uh, at Cavalier? Well, we're literally uh, frozen in our tracks from shipping, and we have trucks that cross the Ambassador Bridge every day, both bringing goods over and bringing things back, um, and that's come to a standstill. What sort of goods, I mean, what kind of goods are we talking about, and, and how much do they need to be where they need to be now? Uh, well, I guess that's a bit of a re- relative question. I can tell you that um, um, our goods, we, we make plastic injection molds. So uh, um, uh, if you've had a tote from Walmart or uh, a door panel in your car or um, uh, similar product, map pockets, uh, you've got a Polaris ATV and you've got fenders and dash and all that stuff, we make the molds that make those parts. So we're the people that make things that make things. So to that end, to answer your question, um, our molds need to be in a press making product for people to sell their product. And uh, right now, stuff that was supposed to ship this week is not shipping. And I understand that already you were facing some challenges just based on the supply chain constraints that we're seeing across the border and have been seeing for quite a few months. There's no doubt about it. Um, um, uh, 
number of things that have that have hit us, um, and we could go on forever about them. But um, most recently, it, it related to the bridge has been transportation because uh, of things that are going on. Trucks are getting harder and harder to get, and uh, there's more demand than there is supply. So this blockade couldn't really have come at a at a worse time for you in many ways. No, you're 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 spot on, and. Uh, um, um, this is something that, um, quite frankly, we don't have a disaster recovery plan that includes a bridge being closed. Uh, shame on us for not thinking that one through. But uh, um, uh, there are alternatives, of course. We can go to other crossings. But the closest one to us is Sarnia, um, and it's intermittent right now, and the backups are long. Other than that, we're heading down to Buffalo and Niagara, which adds a substantial amount of time to our transportation, especially if we're going somewhere in Michigan, Ohio. It's a long way to go around the lake. But uh, uh, we're doing what we can the way as best we can to mitigate the issues that we're having. But there are some things we just can't get across. Because if you look at a map and you're sitting far away from from uh, western on southwestern Ontario, Sarnia doesn't look that far. But in not. fact, in fact, it is though when you're when you're trying to move goods across the border. Well, it's if if I was guaranteed to clear Sarnia quickly, it, it's not a big issue. It's a couple extra hours up there, and maybe an extra hour on the other side going back down towards Detroit from Port Huron. But the truth of the matter is, they're backed up, uh, and variously yesterday, I understand as much as fifteen to sixteen miles uh, to get through customs. So, at the border, not the actual distance from us right now. I'm speaking with Tim Galbraith, the sales manager at Cavalier Tool and Manufacturing in Windsor, Ontario, about the impact of the bridge blockade, the Ambassador Bridge blockade on his business. I mean, this is a bridge you use every day. It's vital to your business. Do you feel like, and this is every level of authority, do you feel like enough has been done to make sure that that critical piece of infrastructure is protected? And you alluded it to, to it a little bit earlier. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, 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 it's time that we have some uh, um, some common sense that comes down. I'm not commenting on the issues of the protesters, um, right, wrong, and different. Uh, but the problem with choking off the manufacturing supply chain by closing the bridge is it puts people out of work. It causes people not to get paychecks. It causes grocery stores not to have product. Uh, the ramifications are huge to to what's going on right now, and and uh, um, that's what we need addressed. And, and quite frankly, we're calling on the federal government to step up and do something about it. And, and I'm not uh, advocating uh, drastic draconian measures, but I am saying that somebody needs to start a dialogue. Somebody needs to get something going. Uh, what is the what could be the impact on you and your employees? How long can you hold out for before there would have to be furloughs or layoffs or anything sure. along those lines? Well, um, and I, I, I like to think that the entrepreneurial spirit in our industry is alive and well, and we will recover from it. Um, we always do. Um, uh, if cars don't go down the line or uh, Walmart doesn't get its shipment, um, there's probably not a lot that's going to happen other than there'll be financial penalties to our customers. Here's the true long-term effect. I'm a Canadian shipping into the U.S. And when I've got a decision maker that has to decide whether to place his order with Cavalier or a U.S. manufacturer, these are the kind of things that kill our business. And it's not today. It's not tomorrow. It's for the next few years. Relationships that we have spent a lot of time developing will go off in the wind because we can't fulfill obligations or the risk mitigation group says it's just not worth placing the business in Canada. And I guess there's already pressures. You're already facing some pressures along those lines, given what we've seen over the last five or six years. 
Absolutely. Every day we're facing the world's getting smaller. We're facing pressures from overseas. Um, uh, again, we've been really good in our industry about stepping up and Cavalier has been very proactive and lucky enough that we have uh, actually thrived during the pandemic because of some plans we put ahead in uh, uh, years ago and, and they're bearing fruit now. But um, we need to transport our goods. It must be frustrating. I was reading that you'd actually reading an article about how you'd expanded back in 2017 because things were going so well. The plans you had in place uh, came to fruition during the pandemic. It must be frustrating to watch all the plans that you've built be impacted by things that are really beyond your control, which is transportation. It is. It's uh, it's very frustrating, and and I'm not the only one. I, I, I got to be quite frank. I feel bad for them. if you're familiar with the area. The uh, in Leamington, south of us, is a huge greenhouse area. And while my steel tool will sit a week, and there'll be a lot of people who get angry, the fellows that can't ship their tomatoes and their peppers are going to get to be in dire straits. Tim Galbraith, thank you so much for your perspective on this, and and good luck. Uh, good luck going forward. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a pleasure. I think many of us remember the aerial images of the Picton Farm property and the evidence unearthed there that told a horrific tale of murdered women women and a killer allowed to prey on society's most vulnerable for years. The first raid on that farm that would become the largest crime scene in this country's history took place 20 years ago this week. Picton, now in his 70s, is behind bars, sentenced to life in 2007 for six murders with enough evidence to charge him with another 20. But what about the lessons his crime left behind? The lessons many vowed would have to be learned to honor the memory of his victims. Have they been learned? And if not, why not? Joining me now is former Vancouver Police Detective Constable and lead investigator on the Picton case, Lorimer Shenher. Now an author, including of Lonely Section of Hell, the botched investigation of the serial killer who almost got away. And this one looks like a boy, my gender journey to life as a man. Lorimer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. For listeners who may not be familiar with your role in the case, uh, you'd been head of Vancouver Police's Missing Persons Unit for just a few days, I think, when you first heard the name Robert Picton uh, in connection with several missing women from the downtown east side in Vancouver. But it would be four more years before that raid. And how would you describe to listeners the four years and the work that you did trying to solve the case? Well, you know, those were... Those were difficult years, and and I should clarify too. I wasn't the head of the missing persons unit. I, I wasn't a detective in there, but I had a, a sort of a part time sergeant, which I know is a small point, but it was one of the issues that um, that just indicated how little uh, energy and and resources was actually devoted to this case. Uh, the four years were challenging, and the and the two years and some where I was searching for the women uh, was incredibly frustrating, not just from a from a human perspective in terms of what these women um, went through in their lives when we knew where they were, but also just how completely they had disappeared and how little it seemed that uh, police really cared about where they were or how we could find them. Uh, We just, we weren't able to, to generate the kind of uh, resource support that we should have had. Um, and it was, you know, it was frankly, it was it was very disappointing. So it was a difficult, you know, time as an investigator. But it was certainly very difficult for the families of these women. You talked about this a lot in in, in other interviews in your book. The attitudes that stood in the way of solving the crimes when uh, you know earlier than they were earlier than they did. 
Yeah, you know, Ben, you know, this is the part that I find probably the most discouraging is that the attitudes uh, and the stereotypes that many, uh, not all of us in policing, but many um, of the people that we worked with held about these women and the kinds of lives that they led really got in the way of finding them. And it got in the way of uh, our being able to generate um, a sense of humanity around these women. And, and I think that the frustrating part for me is we, we still, uh, we saw that same sort of dynamic play out in Toronto with the Bruce MacArthur case where, um, you know, you had investigators that really, you know, uh, did not have any comprehension of the lives of, um, men in the, in the, in the gay community, many of whom were immigrants, people of color, uh, there was just this inability of investigators to actually imagine those lives because they were so different from their own. And so they applied stereotype types, which is what happened with us as well. There were so many stereotypes about the women and what they, you know, that, that if they were missing, it must be because they wanted to be missing. And if they were, uh, you know, very, uh, counterintuitively the idea that if they live high risk lifestyles and they go missing, then they're less at risk than if they don't live high risk lifestyles. And yet we have people, police people telling us things like that, which was just mind boggling. Yeah. You brought that up. I read the op-ed that you wrote uh, during the Bruce MacArthur case and how you referred to the the idea uh, as well in other writings that this idea that people who are highly vulnerable that go missing are somehow less in danger. I mean, people, nobody just vanishes, especially from a tight-knit community. And you, you refer to a lot of those communities as being quite tight-knit. People knew each other. People knew when someone went missing. They just weren't, didn't want to go talk to the police about it necessarily and try to break down those barriers was very difficult. It's still very difficult. Absolutely. And I think that that speaks to that lack of understanding again, because there is this idea and, and I saw it myself, you know, I started as a patrol officer in the downtown East side, and this was back in, in 91. And it initially I thought, Oh, this is just a, you know, it's kind of the wild West down here. It's a bit of a free for all. Nobody really belongs anywhere, but then you start to get to know the people and you get to know the community and you really see that within those six or eight or 10 square blocks, they are community and they have people looking out for them. They have um, some incredible community service people who are looking out for them, who are trying to provide them with supports, trying to provide them with, you know, mental health care and physical care and housing. And it's just, um, you realize that if people are saying they're missing, then they're missing. They're not, you know, they have less resources than almost anybody in our society and, and, you know, you and I both have heard lots of stories where people try to disappear, people with far greater amounts of resource to do that. And so these women, they were not, you know, they were not getting on a bus and going on a vacation or, or you know, taking a plane somewhere. I mean, these were women with such severe addiction issues that they would not have been able to not use drugs for a three or four hour plane ride. I mean, this was, these were the kinds of things we were being told they, where they might be and it was ludicrous. 20 years after the raid on the Picton farm, I'm speaking with former Vancouver Police Detective Constable and investigator on the Picton case, Laura Mershenher, uh, also author of Lonely Section of Hell, the Boston investigation of a serial killer who almost got away. I was curious, I was reading something that you'd done for the BBC on the 10-year anniversary, and, and it was very raw. It was very, it was still very raw. I'm wondering if you look back now after 20 years, have you, do you look back at that investigation and how you got through it any differently? 
I do in some ways, I think, um, you know, with that benefit of time and, and perspective, um, I don't, and a lot of therapy, I'll be honest, I don't bear quite as much personal um, responsibility for some of those failings. Uh, having said that, I, I still do feel that, um, I do feel a lot of that same pain and, and, and uh, frustration that I couldn't have moved the powers that be um, to the extent that I, I should have been able to. Uh, but yeah, with that time and seeing, I think, on a broader scale, the failings of policing systemically and, and as an institution, and I think we're seeing those playing out in fairly real time right now, um, I am a little bit easier on myself, I think, than I was those you know, 10 and 20 years ago. Uh, but I don't think that it will behoove me to completely lose that feeling because I think when we do um, start to think, oh, well, you know, that's the system and, and there's nothing we can do about it, it becomes more difficult to change things. And unfortunately, I, the more I learn of policing over the years and, and, and continue to see, I, I am more convinced than ever that it can't be changed from within. And that, you know, this idea of good cops and bad apples, it doesn't wash. This is, this is bad leadership and a bad culture that doesn't, that, that doesn't provide services equally to all people. When you think back now to those days, I remember reading that you felt no elation really, or you felt a lot of mixed emotions the day of the arrest that finally, because you knew the name, you'd seen the name in the past. Um, when you think back to those days now, is there anything that stands out more than that, that sense of, of mixed feelings on the day of the arrest? Is there anything that now stands out from that time that you've, that you've can hold on to? Well, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, in a lot of ways, I actually, there's so much around that time that's hard to remember. And, and I've learned again, you know, through a lot of therapy that a lot of that is grief. And sometimes the function of grief is we just don't have the clearest memory of things. Um, I do think that that feeling really hasn't changed, which is that, that inevitability. I knew that day, um, was going to come and, or I would get that call and that the farm was being searched. I knew that day was going to come. I think a, a few of us did. And, um, so when it did, I just, you know, I, I was, I still have that same sick to my stomach feeling just knowing, you know, how many women actually, could have been saved had we had we been able to act when we when we should have and had the information to act. I'm speaking with uh, former Vancouver Police um, and lead investigator on the Picton case, Lorimer Shenher, uh, 20 years after the raid on the Picton farm in 2002. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the case itself. I was really interested now in talking a bit about the legacy because I know. 10 years ago, you were talking about a provincial inquiry that you weren't so happy with. Uh, then we were looking towards a federal inquiry, then an action plan for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We've had a National Day of Commemoration now on May the 5th. How have you viewed the progress that we've made? And, and is it nearly enough? Well, I don't think it's enough uh, because women are still going missing across the country, especially Indigenous women. Um, and it's... Unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of things that I think have fueled that. Like anything, I think over time, uh, the interest wanes and we've got other, other big issues, you know, certainly right in, our, right in our field of vision. And 
so a lot of these things sort of fall by the wayside. People assume that that it's getting better. Um, you know, uh, the Auditor General in BC did a comprehensive report in 2016 looking at all these recommendations, and she identified four things that were um, that were a problem to even implementing the recommendations, and they were funding, uh, reporting, stakeholder engagement, and a lack of a champion um, to to make progress. And you know, I think that kind of sums it up because. Uh, you know, these issues, they, they really require a constant um, effort. And unfortunately with, um, like, you know, the communications and um, I think uh, the messaging that a lot of police um, detachments, uh, departments, policing as an institution has definitely stepped into the 21st century in terms of its messaging. And uh, so we start to see that kind of um, spin, I guess, is probably the best way to term it on, on a lot of these things. And a lot of, you know, every little bit of what might be perceived as progress is often pumped up uh, to make people believe that the problem is dealt with and it's not dealt with. And, and, you know, this is, we see it still some of the cases that go to court uh, involving indigenous women and sex, you know, sex workers of all, of all races. And they're still treated like second class citizens. Their cases aren't taken seriously. So it, it hasn't changed that much. The only thing that's really changed is, you know, the police have put a better face on what they're doing. Um, but whether they're actually doing better work, I would, I would really question that. I know you often have to get asked this question, so I apologize in advance. But as you look around you now, even as time has faded a bit, do you think our justice system is any better able to protect the sort of women that were, that fell victim um, 20 some odd years ago now, today as we were then? You know, I, I, I do feel quite a bit of hope in that area because uh, I'm seeing a lot of justice systems in, in the different provinces really looking at systemic racism and whether it's systemic racism amongst um, the law profession and the people trying to, to work as lawyers who are, who are not, um, who are not of the dominant culture. And so I think the more diversity and, and the more intersectionality of experience we can have in all of those areas um, obviously those are good things in policing but they're they have yet to overcome that culture um, but I see it in the legal system a little bit more in the um, in the legal services side of things um, I do see advocacy and uh, you're starting to see judges who are a lot more alive to um, to the stereotypes and the perceptions um, that that judges historically have had to um, to people in, living in poverty, living with drug addiction, mental health issues, sex workers, all those things. So those judgments are slowly changing. I think there is a lot more empathy towards um, the demographic, if you will, that that made up a lot of our missing women. Um, it's slow. And you've still got a lot of dinosaurs in those professions, but you're also getting a lot of, you're getting an infusion of younger, more diverse people coming into those professions who are questioning, you know, they're questioning a colonial system of law. They're questioning colonial based judgments. They're questioning sexist judgments, racist judgments. So I feel very positive about the future. 
it's encouraging, uh, encouraging after trying. I don't think you were as positive 10 years ago as you sound, as sound now. I have about a couple of minutes left. I really just wanted to ask you lastly, just about how you would like this whole, I mean, we may well speak again about this in five years or in 10 years, but as time fades, how would you like people to remember the case? Um, and what should we take away from it? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I was I was in Port Coquitlam not that long ago, and I, there is literally no trace almost of that farm. Um, you know, it just looks like a field. Um, families are, you know, walking by with strollers, and it's great. People are playing soccer out there. There's not much of that property left. So, you know, in many ways, it's easy to forget. I would like people to remember because, I mean, it was and I think my book sort of speaks to that. Uh, it was so, it could have been so easy for this to have never been brought to light for, for, um, for there to have never been a conviction on this, on these cases for these remains to have never been found um, to give some measure of peace, I guess, to the families. Um, it, that was honestly a fluke <laughs> that it even happened. Mm-hmm. So, I don't want people to forget. And, and these women have had some incredible advocates and family members just tirelessly, tirelessly advocating for them and and searching for them. And, and for those people, so many of them, you know, it hasn't ended. They haven't found their loved one or they're not sure where they are um, or where their remains might be. Uh, And yeah, it's, it's not, there has not been sort of a neat ending to this and, and I think that, you know, as with all history, you know, if we, if we forget it, we're doomed to repeat it. And, and that is really my greatest fear is that we'll have a repeat of this, of this type of. Laura Schenner, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate your insight tonight. Well, it kind of goes without saying that the sea can be a very unpredictable place. The open ocean can be a very unpredictable place and a dangerous one because of that. That is why one Victoria company is trying to learn more about so-called rogue waves with 26 sensor buoys set up on coastlines and oceans around North America. The Marine Lab's Coastware Network gathers data they need to try to understand the phenomenon. And it was one of those 26 that captured something truly remarkable off the coast of Vancouver Island in 2020, something that is being called a once in a millennium event. Joining me now to explain is Scott Murphy, CEO of Marine Labs in Victoria. Thanks so much for being here tonight, Scott. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name's Scott Beatty, B-E-A-T-T-Y. Oh, Scott Beatty. Sorry about that. I, my mistake. I must have written that down wrong as I was switching it around. <laughs> sorry, Scott. Scott Beatty's here to explain uh, this phenomenon. So what exactly is a rogue wave? So a rogue wave is a really large wave that basically comes out of nowhere. Um, when, you know, when we're riding on a boat in waves, if we're out surfing or whatever we are doing on the ocean, if the wave that comes up is over two times the waves that are around it, that's classified as a rogue wave. And these can happen in uh, all different kinds of uh, places, but, uh, but yeah, it's quite exciting. So what causes them or do we know? It's uh, actually still a subject for scientific debate. Uh, There is um, kind of, we can kind of like the way we monitor earthquakes, we can know what roughly causes them, but we don't know how to predict them perfectly. Pretty similar to that, but there are some things that are correlated with them. 
Um, but yeah, generally it's highly energetic seas, you know, big storms, that kind of thing. They're more likely to occur. And then it's usually related to how uh, many storms are contributing to the same um, system, the weather system. So, you know, in, in the Pacific, you might have a storm coming from the North Pacific, then maybe something from the West. And if those things are combining together, sometimes that uh, uh, increases the probability of rogue waves, but it is still really an active study. So really, you could have two six foot waves and then a 12 foot wave or 13 foot wave right in the middle of it. Yeah, that's right. So that was, I mean, obviously the dangers for any marine vessel out there are pretty obvious if you're about to, if, if all of a sudden you have this unpredictable wave come at you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and these can happen in sort of moderate seas for big ships. So, you know, ships are used to handling, um, you know, heavy weather. Uh, the Zim Kingston was an, an example of that. Um, it was loitering offshore and there was 10 meter seas out there. And so there could have easily been a rogue wave. We don't really know what caused that, or I hadn't heard, but um, uh, we have, you know, contacts mariners who talk about rogue wave events that basically are not measured, but they experience them and uh, often uh, folklore. Um, but now that we're starting to measure coastlines a lot more and get more data on this, it's, uh, it's exciting to start mapping them more. So, to the headline uh, that came out this week, tell me a bit about what happened off the coast of Ukulele here in Vancouver Island back in 2020. Yeah, so we had a research buoy, uh, one of our units out there, about seven kilometers offshore of Ukulele, and uh, we had it there for the winter, and there was some big storms during the winter, as there always is, and um, this time there was a six-meter seas, which isn't on the, you know, the largest size um, that you would, uh, you know, would see up there. Sometimes you might see 12 meter. Uh, but in that six meter uh, background wave environment, we saw, we measured a 17.6 meter wave that came out of nowhere. Um, and our system, our little buoy transmitted that ashore and we were all just uh, blown away by it um, as a team at Marine Labs and had to sort of double check uh, what was going on with the data just to be sure. And so then we ended up checking with Dr. Johannes Gemrick at University of Victoria, and he's been great to work with. And he ended up taking a, a deep dive into that data. That's, I mean, 17.6, that, that's, that's like a quite a tall, I mean, a, a decent size residential building. Yeah, four stories um, and really uh, could be quite damaging if you're in a boat. I, you wouldn't want to be there, that's for sure. Um, in a ship um, or any kind of craft. And the, the seas were quite nasty. Um, Amphitrite Bank, where our buoy was located, is, is known as a really nasty location during storms. And so, um, so that's you know, something to consider as well, that mariners were probably staying away from that spot. But rogue waves do um, happen closer to shore and sometimes cause damage, loss of life. Um, they can run up on beaches and pull people off beaches. Um, so they can be quite dangerous. And so there is a, a lot of work um, sort of globally around trying to predict when they might happen more likely. And then can we um, have policies around um, people walking on the beach, the use of coastlines, um, that kind of thing. I'm speaking with Scott Beatty, the CEO of Marine Labs. We're talking about a rogue wave that was measured by one of their uh, boys off the coast of Vancouver Island, off the coast of Euclid back in 2020, that I gather was the most extreme just because of, of how much bigger it was than the other things around it that researchers found it was one of the most or the most extreme ever, at least the ones they've measured. 
That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's a fairly sensational headline, but it kind of deserves it. Uh, so we can kind of go back to years and years ago. The first rogue wave measured was called the Draupner wave. And that was in the North Sea, um, where a platform measured a 26 meter wave. So a larger wave, but the background seas were in that 12 to 13 meter range. So it was about double the size of the background waves. But with the wave that we measured, it was 2.9 times. Um, so that ratio makes it the most extreme because it's, uh, you know, basically the largest relative to the background wave environment. So uh, the most surprising. And so it's basically off the charts on those ratios that uh, in, in the paper that Dr. Gemrick published, uh, there is a really interesting chart that plots all the different rogue waves that have happened. And there are other studies like that. And you can see the 2.9, it's just way off the charts. And so that's what's caused this to be a, a very exciting um, event to have measured. I guess trying to figure out, trying to predict these a little better, I mean, it would be similar to what we look at for, I mean, imagine for other natural phenomenon, such as tsunamis and earthquakes and such, but there must be some com real complexities here in trying to figure out what causes these and, and when one may come along. And, and you've actually started to expand your, or about to expand your surveillance, I understand, to try to get a better idea, or at least a broader idea of the phenomenon. Yeah, so um, at Marine Labs, we provide real-time coastal intelligence for ports and maritime operators, but then we also use our data for coastal engineering and for climate resilience studies. So we don't just do rogue waves, mm -hmm. uh, but we really want to expand our network into the hundreds and thousands of units um, around the world. And so we're, you know, that's that's our game. But at the same time, uh, we're able to pick up all this data that'll allow us to do rogue wave analysis in the future. And back to Dr. Gemrick's work, where he's been studying what are the things that are really correlated with rogue wave events happening and has uh, asserted a really interesting uh, theory proposal in that paper that was published in Scientific Reports that um, allows us um, as a society to potentially predict you know, or know when they might be more likely. So then you could basically have kind of like an avalanche warning system, you could have a rogue wave warning system, for example. So there's, uh, there's a, yeah, it's a pretty exciting area of research. And we think that we could provide a lot of data to, the, to, um, to that kind of an effort. I'm speaking with Scott Beatty, CEO of Marine Labs. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating is just how technology is allowing us to understand oceans better. Uh, and you certainly, you mentioned climate change and resilience and so forth. Uh, and that's really what you're up to. How much have we progressed of late and, and where are we going? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, there is a huge movement in um, measuring the ocean and finding uh, ways of doing that within uh, profitable business models and with a, within growth of economy um, and those kinds of things. So it's this termed blue economy. Um, there's a lot of companies growing uh, both East Coast and West Coast of Canada, um, and then also in the U.S. and globally. And uh, we're noticing uh, basically ocean data is becoming a market unto itself. And because the ocean is so vast and 90% of our goods are shipped over the ocean, uh, we also need to be shipping more efficiently. Uh, so there's all kinds of economic activity that can benefit from having data. Like consider in the 80s when you didn't have Google Maps and you were going to do a 10 hour road trip. Uh, remember what that was like. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what maritime is like, it's getting better, but now we're going to give them Google maps. We're going to give them 
these opportunity to make data-driven decisions. And so there's a lot of different ways of doing that. And uh, we're, we're really excited about the route that we've gone with that. It is astounding how much we don't know about the sea, obviously, still uh, these days. So in the near term, where are you looking at setting up and what might we learn um, in, in the next few years from, 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 your, from your system, from your surveillance system? Sure. So uh, we, uh, I mean, we don't really call it a surveillance system. Oh, sorry. It's a yeah. network system. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's, that's fine. Uh, so one thing that's really interesting to us is because we've built this technology, uh, we can deploy it onto anything that floats. So we have algorithms that allow us to measure accurately from everything. And so we could be deploying these on Canada's aids to navigation. You know, those little uh, or big green and red buoys that help you navigate boats. We could instrument all of those and make them real-time data sites. So that's something that's really exciting to us. The U.S. has 60,000 of those. Globally, there's another 10 times that. So that could be a first start in getting real-time data from coastlines um, in, a, in a much more high resolution, much more accurate way and more frequent um, that could be that Google Maps that I was talking about, essentially. Um, and what might we learn? Well, we will be picking up definitely with a network growth like that. We'll be picking up a lot more rogue waves and be able to track, you know, what were the conditions at the time and really drive down into what were the drive, you know, what was what was creating these things or what is uh, a way of um, uh, providing a warning system. But also making marine safety, uh, you know, improving marine safety, providing this data for ships so they can make decisions uh, about whether they want to go or not go um, in certain weather. Um, and also collecting all that data and using it for different um, monitoring exercises for sea level rise. So we have a lot of coastlines that are that have low level, uh, low lying areas and with sea level rise and weather volatility increasing we actually see more flooding on coastlines and that's going to impact things like seawalls, you know, beaches, um, you know, buildings and all kinds of things on the coastlines, including ports and marinas and those kinds of things. And so we think that data is really the way to get at those statistics to then adapt to this changing climate. So this is really about um, adaptation, about understanding what's about to impact these coastlines. So that's another area that's exciting for us as well. We think that we can make a really um, big contribution there. The Coastware Network, to give it its precise name. Um, Scott Beatty, CEO of Marine Labs, thanks so much for sharing the information about the once-in-a-millennium rogue wave and about all the other interesting work you're doing tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.